Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Today is September 27th, 2019. Father Steve Macias and I will be talking about a subject that people can have one opinion about in the theoretical and a very different one in the practical. And as you'll see as we discuss this a little bit further, I'm somebody who probably falls into that initial category. So today's question is this Should Christians avoid? jury duty? I'll let you take it first. Well, it's an interesting question because the idea of the jury is an ancient idea. We can find it all the way back in Viking culture and throughout all of the Western world. But you would think that today in a culture that says judge not, the idea of sitting and judging the soul of another individual for a crime would be a lot less popular. But we see jury duty both besmirched by those who get called for it and also glorified through novels, popular television, TV shows. Uh, Juries are part of our popular culture just as much as any type of rock star is. But the opinion of what the jury does and who the jury is changes from person to person and the time that they're called to be a juror. And the reason I frame this in terms of it's easy to have one opinion in the theoretical is that I have taught about the jury. I'm a homeschool mom veteran. I have been in numerous teaching situations where I was teaching American history and the Bill of Rights and how important the jury system is to liberty, that the 5th, 6th, and 7th of the amendments to the Constitution all have to do with the jury. So it's really easy to talk about how this gives people a voice and everything else. But then, like I was, you're called for jury duty. And you know the date that the week that you have to set aside. And now all the important things you have to do in life come right to the forefront. And do I really want to be bothered by this? Have you ever been called for jury duty? I have, but I've never been able to serve on one. You make it sound like you wanted to. Well, I I think there is a a little bit of a desire to make it through the Wadoyer process and get chosen for a jury because it's an opportunity to bring God's law in a practical way to a crime. Exactly. So in my case, I knew that I had to serve and I arranged my life this way. And I went in hoping, and I'll be honest, hoping that I just get to go home. And part of that, I've I've been in this jury process before. In my adult life, I've been called maybe five or six times, only actually having served on a jury once in a civil case, and other times being either in the pool of waiting if you're going to be called or not. And one of the first things that's obvious to me, at least where I live, is there's all this praise and thanking you for everything that you're doing, and this is a wonderful service, but they treat you like cattle. So you're thrown into a room with a hundred other people all waiting to be called, or in some cases waiting to be told you can go home. They don't have anything there for you to drink. They don't have any coffee and you are told to be there at a certain time and they may not call you for an hour and a half or two hours and then tell you, Oh, by the way, go to lunch. And 
oh, okay, now you can go back to your job. And in California, anyway, after one day of service, which you owe as a citizen, the next day you come back and every day after that, it's $15 that they compensate you for. And this would be your compensation if the trial lasted a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever. So you can see why, practically speaking, most people wouldn't want to do this. Right. And most people recognize that it's just a burden and their, their boss isn't going to be happy if they get called for jury duty. I think there are very few exceptions. I think you've mentioned maybe students and nursing mothers. And, and disabled, disabled people. And uh, those of us here that work at the school uh, recognize that teachers, yeah, but, but we're not included in that list. So if you get called for jury duty, you have to put your life on pause for the potentiality of, of serving on a jury. Now, to go back to the good and godly purpose for juries, it has to do with the fact that the juries consist of people who are, are going to evaluate the guilt or innocence of someone in accordance with the law. So that's a good thing, right? Well, if the law is good, uh, there's, there's some issues here <laughs> with, with there are new processes that were never imagined uh, in the original, maybe even colonial or old common law system for juries that have been introduced here. And I think you've probably experienced these where the modern American jury receives special instructions now, special instructions on what they can use or include in evaluating a case. In fact, there was a very famous case not even a decade ago where a man was on trial for murder and rape, and it was very apparent, there was ample evidence, and the verdict from the jury that this man was guilty and deserved the death penalty was eventually thrown out because the judge learned that inside the deliberation chambers, one of the jurors had quoted an eye for an eye as a evidence or a, a piece of argumentation for why they should vote to uh, to commit this guy to a guilty verdict. Once the judge found out that they had used a section or an authority or an evidence that was outside of the scope presented in the case, the jury's verdict was thrown out because it disavowed the instructions of the jury to only use information that was presented in the case. Right. And I think that's ultimately what had me excused this week. Because as I said, I was hoping I won't get called, I won't get called. And then I got convicted of the fact that this isn't really my decision, this is God's. And so what did I do as a good Chalcedon person? I went to the Chalcedon website, I put in the word jury, and I was looking for something written or spoken of by Dr. Rush Dooney to let me off the hook. Like I said, that theoretical and the practical, it's funny when you're right up against something you don't want to do. And there is a chapter in his book, Our Threatened Freedom, and he also has a recording of that, the exact same material, either in written form or in audio form, where he asks, have you served on a jury lately? And so I listened, hoping I'd be told in my mind that it's not bad that you don't want to do this. Well, it was just the opposite. It was that the jury gets to judge the law, and it's, and it's really a protection against status government. So I went to bed thinking, okay, fine, God, if this is what you want, this is what you want. Well, came into the courtroom the next day, and it looked like they had all the jurors they needed until systematically they released 11 of the 24 that were there. And so what happens? They call 13 more to come up and be questioned. 
I was among them. And I still was waiting for a sign. Come on, God, tell me why I'm here, right? And I sit in seat number 13, which just happens to be my favorite number. And I went, okay, this is no coincidence that I'm in 13. And so there's this whole questionnaire you have to go through. And by the questions they ask, it's incredibly interesting how they're going to filter out who's on the jury. So just for example, if you are related to, are, or closely associated with anybody who's a lawyer, they're probably going to excuse you. If you're closely associated with anybody who's a policeman or you are a policeman, you're going to be excused. In my case, after the attorneys were talking about these requirements that you remain neutral, we don't want you to come into this process with any bias. We want you to just listen to what we say and promise that you're not going to come up to any conclusions until we release you into the jury deliberation room where the judge is going to give you very specific instructions. So when I was asked by the judge, can you follow my instructions? I said, as long as they don't violate my convictions. And she looked at me and she says, no, 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 you, you don't understand. I'm going to give you very specific instructions. So if you have any religious political views, you have to agree to put them aside. So really what they're telling most people is there is such a thing as neutrality. Yes. It should not be a surprise to us. Those who have, who have read Rushduni recognize that the idea of the civil government has always been a religious sphere. What's really remarkable is that we have somehow taken the idea of a Christian government or a Christian system of justice and believe or somehow suppose that it could be neutral. That's never been the case. In fact, at the time of Christ, the judging of people, the systems of courts, were all done by religious leaders. It was seen that the judge in the Roman court should be a religious leader of some sort. Uh, and throughout the Western world, whether it was Greece or Rome, the, the judge was seen as a religious figure. You know, taking the divine's will and putting it on the people. They even had you know, rituals and, and magic that they would use to figure out who was really guilty or not guilty. It's only inside of the Judeo-Christian, this Western identity, that the idea of evidences and witnesses and jurisprudence is born under a religiously mosaic system of codified law. And interestingly enough, at the beginning where you promise that you're going to tell the truth, you swear to no one but yourself. Do you promise to tell the truth in all these proceedings? I do. And everybody sits down. And then the process continues and they want to know more things about you. And some people obviously get intimidated, so they get over to the side and they get to have a sidebar with the two attorneys and the judge. But I determined I was sitting in seat number 13, and I was going to say unapologetically things that I thought. And uh, so previously, the day before, the district attorney had basically had people who were up there vowing, put your hand up if you promise not to bring any preconceived notions into this whole process. And you could see how people were being intimidated. Like, can you promise you will not be biased? Um, yes, you know, because who wants to say they're going to be biased? Because you mentioned in this world where you're not supposed to judge anything. 
So when I was asked that, I said, well, my understanding of the jury, and now there's a whole courtroom of people here, uh, attorneys and jurors and prospective jurors. My understanding is that a jury wanted the people. You didn't want them to park their brain. And so I don't think I can. And I said, on top of that, the district attorney had said, would it bother you if we brought no witnesses against this person? And I said, well, I think the accused should be able to see his or her accuser. Well, you can see that the defense attorney really liked that because obviously the case isn't going to evolve, involve that particular thing. And you could see the district attorney's face is like, okay, this person is out. So they, they let everybody else out for lunch and they wanted further explanation. And I said, well, the Bible says on the testimony of two witnesses. So if you don't have two witnesses, and you can see the judge and the, the attorneys were like, she's gone. Except, so on the one hand, there was a little bit of, well, there was a lot of relief, but what there also was is a sense that I at least said it. And I realized that most of the people who they bring to the jury, if they have any knowledge of the Constitution or of history, they probably don't want those people. They don't want people who know the Constitution or the law, but that's historically how tyrannies have functioned. The reason why the jury was emphasized in the colonial period was because England had abused the right of judges over the colonists. So you look at the Stamp Act that was put upon the colonies in you know, the early uh, period of American history, and it was the Stamp Act that was bringing men to court. And the English had set up English judges in the land without a jury of their peers to prosecute people for breaking the Stamp Act. And Patrick Henry and these other uh, constitutional or what would be constitutional leaders, were debating that the principles of the common law, starting with the Magna Carta, had demanded that a jury of one's peers must be used in order to punish somebody or find them guilty. This was from King John of England in the 13th century, and that it could not be broken. And so for the early Americans, the jury trial was a way of interposition. It was a way to nullify unjust laws because you could have your jury of colonists who could come in as you were being tried for breaking the illegitimate Stamp Act. And all 12 jurors could say, well, we don't believe the Stamp Act should be a legitimate law to break. So therefore, we're going to all say not guilty and uh, throw this case out. So the, the judges will always respond by trying to remove this ability of the common people from having influence on judging whether a law is good or bad, which is the primary purpose of a jury. <laughs> right. So when I never used the word jury nullification, but when the judge was looking at me and asking, so what you're saying is if I give you a specific instruction, you won't follow it. And I said, well, there are laws that are on the books that are not good laws and they're not correct laws. So no, I would not violate my conscience. Now, you would think that somebody would say, well, good, here's a mix of people. But really what they're working on, this is my conclusion, I don't have this written anywhere, but they want to have a jury that will do what the judge wants, the conclusion the judge wants them to come up with, so that when they go into the deliberation room, after having been inconvenienced and waiting and all this, and maybe having little knowledge of God's law for sure, since his name is never invoked in any place in the entire process, that they're going to do what they're told. 
So if everything points to a verdict of not guilty, but they don't let you see everything, or they're told you're to disregard what you see and your impressions of people, then it's hard to imagine what's left. Who is it they're selecting to come to a verdict? Right. And I think that this reflects the distrust that the kind of professional lawyers, professional judges have for the common people. Now, some of it's justified, of course. Those who have gone through the public school system, uh, are they really legitimately a group of our peers if they don't understand God's law? Do you want those who believe in all kinds of public school aberrations to really be judging over you? But there also has this new class of people that's set over us to judge us that has a completely different idea of what government is. The jury must be a jury of our peers, and it must be an educated populace. It must be those who are willing to consolidate the power of the government to the lowest possible levels. But now it's impossible with an uneducated populace to recognize really the system of courts and justices that we have today with its districts and superiors and uh, state courts and all these things to really be a legitimate form of the federalism that our founders imagined. There is an entire ministries now devoted to jury education. But as you said, there's this great conflict of the people who would serve best on juries are not being picked by juries uh, to serve anyway. And so in the past, I've heard discussions that said things like, well, then don't reveal that you're a Christian and you just wait till you get into the jury room and then you can do what you're doing. Although it sounds noble, it sort of reminds me of people who want to go in and reform the public schools. Yeah, you can have an audience of 25 people at a school board meeting, but at its root, the Christian should want to see public education abolished, not improved. I think rather than having it be, no, you shouldn't, or you absolutely should and sneak your way in, maybe use it as an opportunity when you're questioned, and now you have an audience. In my case, I had an audience of about 50 to 60 people. I rarely get an audience of 50 to 60 people. And I was saying things like, the Bible requires the testimony of two witnesses. I don't believe I can violate my conscience regardless of what the law is. I think that the accused should be faced by his accuser. Oh, the other thing I said was, if he's not faced by his accuser, and so the judge reminded me, no, it's the state of California that's bringing the charge against this person. And I said, well, the state of California isn't a victim here. So they went on to the next one. <laughs> the point yes. is, maybe that's the whole reason I was there. So I could be the voice of one crying in the wilderness and have people think, wait a minute, maybe there's more I need to know here. Maybe there's more I need to understand. Right. And there's, there's more to this. But rather than seeing this as a, as a pessimistic view, uh, the Bible speaks directly to this idea of, of local courts and justices. I mean, St. Paul himself admonishes the Christians in his age not to go to uh, the local courts or to take the Christians to courts. So they were speaking about similar issues way back then. And they were, of course, under pagan Roman courts or even amongst the courts of the Jews. And what happens in a very short order, uh, and this is really the message of Reconstruction, is that the rest of the spheres of life, education, the family, you know, business, those all informed uh, the courts of that day. And we could see within just a few hundred years of Christ's advent, 
that the legitimacy, the strength, the equality that exists in God's law appeals to men, right? When, when men are arguing over wrongful death, when men are arguing over theft, when men are arguing over true injustices, the only real justice that can be found is in the law of God. And so when Christians established independent courts uh, under their elders and, and inside their local churches, those quickly became the places of arbitration. Men would not go to the Roman courts. Even pagan men would subject themselves to Christian elders for them to uh, handle the disputes. You know, it's kind of like uh, Moses revisited, right? So, but the, the Christian courts became known for applying God's law to these things. And then when the Roman Empire eventually becomes Christian, uh, and, and this is, as Rushdini points out, the origin of many of our Christian vestments, uh, the Roman courts and the, the witch doctors and, and uh, religious leaders who are leading the Roman courts are chased out and they're replaced with uh, Christian bishops because Christian bishops were seen as the judges of the people. And uh, in very short time, the Christians were recognized for their faithfulness to God's law and they were placed in authority over the entire empire because of their fidelity to God's law, because they could see that that was the only true justice. And I guess one of the benefits of having been a student of biblical law for 30 years and having taught it for 20, as I heard the various things being presented, I knew where in the scripture this was addressed and how it was a violation. So for example, the district attorney, I can't remember which one it was because it was hard to see. They were just trying to, I think at this point, flesh out who they wanted to talk to for the rest of the thing, which is what the voir dire process is about. But if this person, for example, had done a similar crime 10 times before, you understand that you can't take that into consideration about now because bad behavior doesn't determine your future. So, of course, the first thing I thought of was the incorrigible. And as most people misunderstand it, they think the incorrigible son is a nine-year-old who won't keep his room clean when the incorrigible son was a repeat offender who would never change his behavior and continue to do it. So the jury and all the people who could have been called for the jury who were being addressed at this point were told, you're not allowed to take any consideration of anything that this person did in the past. So again, when I was asked, could you follow the instructions? I said, well, I know enough to know that in this court proceeding, there might be relevant information that the jury never hears because of some technicality. And the judge said, you're absolutely right. You're not allowed to speculate about anything. So if anybody could actually do this, which Steve, I don't think they could, but they say they could so that they'll get the desired outcome, that would mean that you'd have to go in there with a blank slate and act as though these were your teachers. These people are the only ones who can tell you what can be considered and how you should consider it. Right. Well, and then there's no irony in the fact that courthouses are decorated with Greek gods holding the scales of justice. They believe, just like the ancients, that they were the origin and the source of God and law. I mean, there's no other place in our current culture where you can see that they might be gods as clearly as in this system of courts and justice. I mean, it's why Rushdoony said that the, the source of law in your culture is your God. So if your source of law is that guy in the black robe 
strangely enough, uh, sitting behind a bench or the guy wearing the suit behind the, the table there in the courtroom, then those are the gods of your culture. And uh, unfortunately, in this last two generations, those gods have taken over what it means to be true and just. And I think there's this subliminal, if not overt, sort of message is that we own you. That's why making you wait is something that isn't really all that problematic. And I had to laugh because when the woman who was on the loudspeaker giving us updates said, at one point we were there since nine, now it's quarter 11, congratulations, you have a two hour lunch break. So now here we all are, we've just spent the whole morning and now we get to go have lunch somewhere. And then the next day when we were told we had to wait, it's like, well, you can go down and buy some coffee. Do they have water in the jury room? Do they have coffee in the jury room? Oh, no, they're not treating you like you really are as special as all those posters that are on the wall tell you you are. It's that you have to be here, and let's remind you over and over again that if you don't come when you're supposed to, it's a $1,500 fine or five days in jail or both. Right. Well, and the the other thing we, we don't think about with juries uh, is that what they result with the 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 results we get from juries today? Considering all of these things, are are they legitimate? Uh, you know, we've seen God's law, the command to give due process. We have the the commands in God's law to execute punishment on on those who are uh, doing these her- terrible heinous offenses. Uh, we have. Entire political parties who have in their platform either the abolition or the support of the death penalty, but are we focusing as a culture on the outcomes rather than on the processes? You know, so much of the last 300 years of American history has been focused on creating a system that was uh, impervious to the imperfections of man. Right? The, we're all going to have ill-equipped jurors in every single jury trial, but if the entire system has been reworked in the last 100, 100 years to uh, give these type of instructions to abrogate instructions from God's word to force the jurors hands in so many different ways. Are the verdicts that juries hand down legitimate or have we undone the entire impact of a jury system by putting the judge and the attorneys in control of the verdict from the very beginning? Not only that, one of the other jurors said that he might be disinclined to do a particular thing because he understood what the punishments were for a particular crime. They didn't tell us the full details, but we knew the broad category. And the judge made it clear, that's none of your concern. We'll determine the punishment. All you have to do is determine whether or not the district attorney proved beyond a reasonable doubt that this person was guilty. Well, there again, God's law is specific that the punishment should fit the crime, that there are As far as I can tell in scripture, there isn't a whole process of plea bargaining so that you throw somebody out with like 30 charges to bring it down to five so you can make them feel like, okay, I've got a better deal. Really and truly, I came away with this isn't about the criminal. This isn't about the plaintiff or the defendant. This is about establishing the status principle that we are in charge, the government, the civil government is in charge, and we answer to no one but ourselves. Right. And this has actually been debated amongst different religious traditions as well. Uh, There are several 
uh, religious groups today that will refuse to serve on juries. Uh, I think one of them is the Jehovah Witnesses refuse to participate in juries at all because they don't recognize any government because they are, quote, citizens of heaven, they say. But there are movements in the Middle Ages, you know, the Anabaptists, who refused to participate in the jury process as well because they saw it as similar to conscription in military service, that the jury for them was belonging as an appendage to the state. Now, if your view of the state is top down, right, the, there's a ultimate authority at the top who's replacing the place of God and you're being dragged up into that appendage, you can understand that. But the Christian principle of government is that the government begins with the individual and the individual delegates that power upward. So if that's the way, and that's the way the federal system was created, then the jury uh, is one of those basic ways like voting that Christians are exercising their views on laws and how the laws are met out. And I think it gives us a good reason to hope and a good reason to work for Christian Reconstruction because I knew that I wasn't going to go in and change the entire system. I knew that if God wanted me on that jury, no matter what my answers were, I was going to be on that jury because I knew that my, my destiny was not in the hands of the judges or the lawyers. It was in, in the hands of God. And I think if we honestly want to change the culture, this is why a bottom-up thing is so important, because somebody created the laws that allow these judges and attorneys to restrain anybody having from an independent thought or coming from any particular political, ethical, or religious view. I had to laugh, Steve, when most of the jurors, when they were looking through the last four questions, which were probably the most important, were, no, I don't have any views that would make it so I couldn't do any of what you asked me to do. And I'm thinking, these people are willing to state publicly they have no views. Well, number one, <laughs> it's not true. But number two, they just said, I have no political, religious, or ethical views that would make it impossible for me to do what you say, even though I don't know what you're going to tell me to say. Yes, even though... To say you have no views is to embrace a Lockean political view. Anyway, that's, exactly. that's beside the point. But I think what's important for us to think about today is uh, it's easy for us to wrap our mind around a jury trial for murder, for, for theft, or rape, things like this that are common today. But what we need to think about in the next, and it's happening right now if you ask some people, the next 10 to 15 years is that the jury and the legal system are going to be drastically changing. Uh, you see even today the ideas of, of thought crimes, the idea that what we believe, what we feel, what we say are subjected to new sets of laws that police what are hate crimes, that police what are hate speech. And those are going to come into courtrooms in the next few decades. And there's going to be precedent sent by juries who do not have a Christian worldview, who think speaking on homosexuality or on uh, God's will for marriage, that those uh, are not neutral or Christian ideas, but the, that whatever the judge says is true, is true. You can imagine in the near future, parents being sued by their children for gender identity issues. And there's going to be a jury that you might be called to that's going to say, uh, doesn't really matter what you believe about gender or sexual identity, whatever the judge says is the truth. And that's really the, the, the issue we're having today. There's a, a wonderful film, I don't know if wonderful is the right word, but there's a, 
exposing film produced many years ago uh, called the Minority Report, where they kind of expose this type of thing that if we don't allow a fixed standard with fixed evidences uh, to establish what true justice is, then we're left to whatever machinations or imaginations that the future could come up with. Right. I believe in that movie, the whole theme was you were going to identify people ahead of time who might commit crimes and either attempt to rehabilitate them or to, to eliminate them because they could be a danger. That's right. And the, the spoiler of this movie is uh, they have these, these future tellers, which is ironic considering the Roman and Greek state. Of, of how they did justice, of imagining the future of this person. But these future tellers could somewhat reliably predict who was going to be a criminal. And the spoiler was that, well, they only kind of knew. They weren't 100% certain, uh, which right. is the danger of any professional ruling class, why we need the wisdom of a jury of our peers, why the Western world has always relied on God's standards of evidence in favor of uh, real justice. So the only defense against tyranny is to understand God's law and be willing to stand for it regardless. Because what you just pointed out, if it's against the law to be biased against someone who is confused about his gender, and you're sitting there under the oath of promising to tell the truth, and you say, oh, you think there's only two genders, you might not get on the jury, but could you be arrested for this thought crime? So I, I believe, in truth, nobody in these positions of current authority care what you think. They just care what you do. So you can have all the ideas you want, but when it comes to putting them into practice, you better do things our way. That's right. And this idea of, of juries uh, and local courts is very important. But the principle applies to every level of government. Uh, we live in a day and age where the Supreme Court of the United States has severely overstepped its boundaries. Uh, it's done the same thing uh, that local courts have done. They have said, we're going to use our view of the Constitution. These men who were appointed by presidents are going to use their view to inform what law is. And since 1973, they have been in contradiction. Well, a number of decisions have been in contradiction to God's law, but since 1973 with Roe v. Wade, they've been in contradiction to God's standards on what life is and how to protect human life. And just like the individual juror would be responsible in a courtroom to nullify or to interpose himself against an unjust law, uh, in the Supreme Court's uh, situation, individual states and, and local courts and, and lesser courts have the responsibility by God to interpose themselves against the higher court to overturn those type of things. Uh, that's the way that the government was set up to be. Uh, there is no idea that any judge or court, no matter what their name is, is truly supreme, but rather that they are just a, a delegated authority of a lower uh, of a lower power. Right. It's funny that you bring up the Roe v. Wade because. In previous questioning, the judge was asking potential jurors to give examples when they said they could or couldn't do something. And I was ready for, well, give me an example 
of a law that could be on the books that was contrary to your conscience. And I was then prepared to say, well, for example, the idea that abortion is legal, that goes against the fact that it's very clearly the murder of a human being. But I didn't get asked the question, so I wasn't able to give that answer. But it made clear to me that we really should always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within us, because in various places at various times, we're going to be asked those kinds of questions. That's right. Well, and what's in the news today uh, with the environmental issues that are continually showing up in the media, the further we get away from God's idea, and you brought this up of, of a victim and a crime, uh, the more convoluted our justice system is going to become. You know, it's very common, as we talk about jury trials, uh, to think of, of um, popular movies where uh, I think of The Runaway Jury, uh, a John Grisham novel where it was made into a movie where the state is suing uh, a popular cigarette manufacturer. And these ideas of victims are, are convoluted. Or you think of Erin uh, Brockovich, where she's a, a young paralegal who is going to bring a case of environmental abuse against a big corporation, right? We live in a culture where the most they know about jurisprudence, the most they know about civil courts and juries is through these cases where there's no legitimate victim or the standard that God has is completely ignored in favor of a standard invented by the EPA or some local jurisdiction or principality or, or civil government, rather than recognizing that when we move away from victims' rights, uh, when we move away from victims and those who uh, transgress the victims, we don't do a greater service for more people. We are limiting the scope of what justice can actually achieve. Uh, you can see that today here in California. We have men who are incarcerated uh, for drugs that are going to be you know, legalized in this state. We have all kinds of, of strange situations that when we move away from God's standard, that we get this anarchy and chaos that doesn't really uh, justify or come out equitable for each and every man. It becomes a respecter of persons. Well, I certainly got a lesson this week, and I got a lesson personally in terms of make sure that what you say and teach is really what you believe. And I think that uh, for the discomfort I had and the frustration and what I felt like were days of wasting my time were really an educational process, and that's why I'd highly recommend people get and read Rush Dooney's book, Our Threatened Freedom, because he goes through all sorts of different aspects of this, and the way in which we're going to change the culture is to first change ourselves so that we're thinking God's thoughts after him, and that we have a holy boldness that comes from that that will allow us to speak into the lives of those around us and be ready to give an answer when we're challenged or questioned about why we hold a particular view. Amen. Any other books you would recommend in terms of the jury and where people might learn more about this? Right. So if you read the Antifederalist papers, uh, there are numerous references to the juries here, uh, particularly if you read Patrick Henry's papers there, uh, and I can't remember his pseudonym at this time, but uh, it's important for us to understand uh, 
the founding principles behind the jury. And so I would recommend going back to those documents. All right. Well, good. Well, listeners, thanks for giving us your attention for this short amount of time. Please continue to send in comments via email or suggestions for future discussions at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And Steve, as always, good talking with you. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.